0: You know the difference between power and authority. You know the difference between the power of might and the power of right. G.K. Chesterton did. He has this interesting observation. He noted once that if a rhinoceros were to enter this room right now, there is no denying he would have great power here. But I should be the first to arise and assure him he had no authority here whatsoever. The rhinoceros has great power, but the rhinoceros has no authority. That is the power of might versus the power of right, the power of authority. For instance, we return to our text this morning in the last book of the Christian Bible. We're faced with power and all of its seductive forces. The state... As it often has in the world, past and present and in the future, the state can wield its totalitarian power against people like you and me. It demands authority over our conscience, over our speech, and over our worship. Now, there's nothing inherently anything wrong with power. Power is good. It's right. It's godly. And don't be deceived by those who say it's not. But few things are as ungodly and serpentine as the misuse of power. Well, the people in our text today are living in a society in which the state was misusing its power in monstrous ways. They used their power to shame and to slander and in some instances even to kill. And not only did the state use its power to shame and slander, the state used its power in a more seductive way to seduce its citizens by its wealth and by its riches. Every day, friends, people like you and me, churches like ours, face the seduction of the world, its power and its riches. But while this world does indeed have power, it has the power of might, no one and nothing in this world has the power of right. Like the rhinoceros, people may have power, but they have no final authority. And this is all what comes to pass in our passage this morning, because to people tempted by the good life of this world, to people threatened by the power of the world to conform and give in or give up, to those kinds of people tempted by wealth or to give in by the conforming pressure comes a surprising vision to remind all of us of the only one who has all power and all authority. And this surprising vision will sustain us in our work and in our witness. That's what I want us to think about this morning, that in the face of all kinds of trials, in the face of all kinds of temptation, we have a surprising vision meant to sustain us in our work and in our witness. The son of man says, fear not. And who do you think you are to disobey that command? That's what we're going for this morning. If you're not there already, would you locate the last book of the Christian Bible, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter one? This is our fifth message. We're settling into this series. Revelation is an urgent call to worship the lamb and to heed his words to the end. And this morning we'll see once again, this call is not so much to individuals, but to congregations like our own congregations were tried and tempted then they need the same thing that we need now. What is that? We need a revelation of Jesus Christ to sustain us in our work and our witness. And that's what John gives us today. That in our trials and temptations, John gives us by the spirit a surprising revelation to sustain us in our work and our witness. The son of man is going to command us to fear not. And how dare we not obey him? Well, we could capture the formal flow in our text this morning like this. A troubled John writes to troubled churches about a sovereign son of man. That's the flow of the argument. A troubled John writes to troubled churches about a sovereign son of man. And that sovereign vision of the son of man is meant to sustain us. Well, let's read Revelation 1 beginning in verse 8. Revelation 1 beginning in verse 8 to the end of the chapter. Now you see, as we read, you see if you can spot the surprising revelation and this dramatic text meant to sustain us. Revelation 1, starting in verse 8, this is what Holy Scripture says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze or exquisite brass, refined in a fire. His voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as you watch this dramatic scene unfold, did you spot spot the surprising vision? The vision meant to sustain us? It's there in verses 12 to 18. John records a surprising vision of a son of man and his response to it. When I saw him, that's the vision, I fell at his feet as dead. That's his response, verse 17. And on either side of this vision, comes a command to write. Keep looking down at your text. Look at verse 11 again. Write what you see in the book. Now look down at verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. So on either side of this surprising vision of the Son of Man comes a command to write what you've seen. Now, why is John telling us this story in this kind of dramatic arrangement? Why is it happened like this? Why is the vision in the center... And the command to write on either side. Why this structure? Because remember, every passage has a structure. And if you find the structure of the passage, you'll find the author's emphasis. Find the structure, you're on your way to finding the emphasis. So based on this overall structure, what is a dramatic emphasis in this scene? Why did John put the vision in the middle and the command on either side? Why has the Lord done this? Well, I think it's this. This vision of the son of man in the center is meant to sustain John in his work as he writes this book. The vision in the center is going to sustain John as he carries out the command to write this book. And John is not only writing, but John tells us he's suffering on the account of the testimony of Jesus. I think that means the testimony about Jesus, the testimony for Jesus. We could say that John is suffering on account of his witness for Jesus because testimony means somebody's legal witness in a court of law. This vision, then, is meant to sustain John in his work and in his witness, But John's not the only one this vision of the Son of Man is for. Well, look at verse 11. To whom is John right? Well, he writes to these seven churches who John says are facing tribulation, which means now that this vision of the Son of Man will not only sustain John in his work, but God intends for this vision of the Son of Man to sustain these seven churches in their work as well. And not only their work. But like John, they're witness to. Why am I saying witness again? Well, look down at verse 20. At the end of verse 20, what picture does the son of man use to describe the churches? The churches are pictured as. Don't make me do all the work. Pictured as what? Lampstands. That's right. Along with the Old Testament imagery of the lampstand, one of the main reasons churches are called lampstands is because Jesus said to believers, he looked at his followers and said, you are the light of the world. One reason Jesus calls these seven churches lampstand is because in their work and in their witness, churches must neither assimilate nor isolate from the world. But churches, even in the face of trials and tribulation, are to be Christ's witness to the world or Christ's light to the world. So this surprising vision, it opens this entire story of revelation of the sovereign Son of Man, sustains John and these seven churches and their work and in their witness. And we will see starting next week, Lord willing, that every description of the Son of Man in this chapter that John sees will show up again in every address to the seven churches, which means this vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1 sustains these seven churches, confronts these seven churches, and comforts these seven churches in their work and in their witness. What they need, He is for them, both in warning and in comforting to them. But this vision precedes this letter to seven churches, which means you have a vision before the letter to seven churches. And then after the letter to the seven churches in Revelation four and five, you have another vision this time of Christ is the risen lamb. So these seven churches in chapters two and three are surrounded on either side by a vision of the sovereign Son of Man and a slain and risen Lamb, which means Christ not only stands in the midst of these seven churches, but He stands around them like a wall of fire to protect them from all that's going on. It's a visual literary structure John gives us by the Spirit to remind us, I'm among you and I'm around you as the sovereign Son of Man, as a Lamb who's back from the dead. So don't you be afraid. And how dare you disobey me? That's where we're going. But there's one more group this vision in chapter 1 is meant for. God means for this vision of the Son of Man to sustain our church too. How do we know that? Here's one way. Revelation 1, three, Blessed are those who hear and keep the words of this book. EBC needs to hear the vision of for this vision, see this vision, for our work and witness too. And the first thing we get after a greeting of grace and peace and a focus of faith, the first thing after this greeting for our persevering and a focus for our faith is a colossal vision of the cosmic Christ. And it's no accident because more than anything else, more than anything else in our suffering, we must see Jesus. That in our troubles, we must see Jesus. You can have all this world. But give me Jesus. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in the believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows and heals our wounds and drives away our fear. In times of trouble... In times of defection to the world because of the glittering delights of the world and the apparent relief it provides, John needs this vision of a sovereign Son of Man. The churches need this vision of a sovereign Son of Man. And we need this vision of a sovereign Son of Man. Because in all of our trials, and all of our temptation, this surprising vision of the Son of Man is meant to sustain us in our work and our witness. The son of man comes at us and says, fear not. And how dare you disobey? him? The rest of our time this morning, let's follow the drama in two ways. Let's follow what John heard. And then what John saw. What he heard is nine, eleven, 11 and, and verse 20. And what he saw is the vision. So first, let's follow what John heard, especially verses 9 to 11. Now, every story has to begin somewhere. Where and when is this story set? Well, the drama opens on an island, but it's not fantasy island. De diplain. It's not fantasy island, and it's not Hildenhead Island. It's an island called Patmos. Patmos is a Greek island in the Aegean Sea that sits closer to western Turkey than it does the mainland of Greece. Now, Hilton Head looks like a tennis shoe, and it runs 12 miles long and five miles wide. Well, Patmos is 10 miles long and and five miles, six miles wide. So John's story opens on an island that's just about the size of Hilton Head. So the next time you're on Hilton Head, you think John was on an island about this size near the end of his life. But that's where the similarities stop. Because Hilton Head was a recreational island. And Patmos is an island where prisoners go under the Roman Empire. Patmos at the time consisted mainly of volcanic hills and rocky ground. And at this point in his life, historians tell us John is an octogenarian. He's in his 80s, a prisoner of Rome. Mighty Rome, afraid of an 80-year-old man. It's the rage of the dragon in Revelation 12 against the seed of the woman. John's most recent pastorate has been in Ephesus, which lies some 40 miles across the blue Aegean Sea from Patmos. And Ephesus will be the first church that gets a letter from John as the courier goes out. But this 80-something-year-old pastor John has not been sent to Patmos by his Ephesian church family as a gift for his decade-long faithfulness. Rome has sent John to Patmos as a punishment for his faithful witness and his testimony about Jesus. I write, John says, as your brother and partner in the tribulation on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Early historian Eusebius tells us that John was banished to this island by the Roman emperor Domitian in AD 95. Beloved, everyone that lives godly will suffer some kind of persecution. And if you're not suffering any kind of persecution, you're not living godly. And sometimes the worst persecution, whether you're Daniel in the lion's den as an 80-year-old or you're John on an island as an 80-year-old, sometimes the worst persecution may come in old age. I want you to know that this 80-something-year-old John has not given in to the American notion of retirement. Those of you honored gray heads among us and honored you are, we need you and we praise God for you. People talk about diversity in church plants and in churches, but one of the ways they overlook diversity is the diversity of ages. We need people like John the Apostle, who have known Christ more than we have been alive. Can I tell you as your pastor, don't waste your old age. There are sins and temptations of youth, and there are sins and temptations of old age, too. Let John's act of faithfulness in his 80s encourage your act of faithfulness in your older years. God wants to use young people. And he wants to use old people too. Don't waste these years of your life Facebooking and seashell collecting and rb and commenting on controversies online that you can nor should probably do anything about. Young or old. Those things will shrivel your soul till it looks like the skin of a raisin. Here's something to do this afternoon. Google John Piper and seashells. Just Google John Piper and seashells. Go watch the message called boasting only in the cross from May 20th, 2000, when he admonished 40,000 young college students about old age and having nothing to offer God in retirement, but seashells. Listen to that message about seashells. Look at John's life in his 80s and be admonished and provoked to use your old age not to rust out, but to burn out to the nubby end like a candle in the dark for the glory of God and good of your brothers and sisters in this church. And you are doing that. And I'm telling you, as your pastor, keep doing that. Here's an example. What does that mean? Well, Paul says this in Titus 2, the older women, you teach the younger women. What should I teach the younger women? Here's an inspired thing. Paul says, older women teach the young women to love their husbands, to keep their home, be lovers of sound doctrine, and neither be slaves to strong drink or slanderers. Older men, you teach the younger men to be self-controlled, sound in the faith, sober-minded, full of good works, providers for their family, men who not only see themselves as helpers, but leaders in their home who lay down their lives in love and leadership and provision and protection. Look at John. Don't waste your old age. God will use you. So as the scene opens... An 80-something-year-old man imprisoned on a small volcanic island on account of the word of God and the testimony of Christ is in prison. But neither his age nor his remote location nor the intent of Rome to keep him from being an influence keep God from using John for his most stunning work yet in his life. Yes, to old age, I will carry you and sustain you. I said that in Isaiah 46, 4. To old age, I will carry you and sustain you. And in old age, I'm going to use you, John, from the island of Patmos. Rome has you just where I wanted you to be. And I'm going to bring my purposes to pass through the weakness of an old man imprisoned on an island called Patmos. John, like all who live godly, is enduring tribulation But while he's alone in a sense on the island, he's not alone in a suffering. He says, I am your partner in tribulation, the kingdom and endurance. The word partner is a form of the word fellowship. We could translate it. I am your fellow participant. We wouldn't say this in English. I am your fellowshipper. I share with you in this suffering. Neither John nor those to whom he writes is alone. They're sharing together. They're fellowshipping together in the tribulation, in the kingdom, in the patient endurance for Christ. Now that word patient endurance in the ESV, do you see that word patient? It's in the NIV and the NLT as well. It's only one word in the original text. And I think this word captures John's mood that he wants to infect us with. One commentator notes, this word patient endurance is not an act of resignation, but an active, courageous kind of activity. The endurance we're called to is not resignation, but an active, courageous kind of endurance and activity. In other words, the endurance John speaks of is not the endurance of a person. I'm sorry, this is twice this morning, Dr. Brown. This is, this is not, this is not the the passive, the endurance of somebody in the dentist chair who passively and anxiously endures. Though you won't if Dr. Brown takes care of you. But it's not that kind of passive resignation. It's not the endurance of the kid in class who's enduring until the school bell rings and we're out. The endurance John speaks of is the endurance of a long-distance runner moving along to the finish line. The endurance of a boxer surviving into the 12th round or a mother in the middle of the night who gifts up for another night feeding. This isn't resignation. This is courageous, enduring activity and advance. It's enduring the incline of the treadmill. Enduring the weight on the weight bar, digging deeper and pushing back. This is important to catch because suffering in opposition and opposition and, and fierce, fierce opposition can make us draw back or retreat. I'm just going to be quieter. I'm just going to stay here and withdraw. The stories of the dragon and the hissing of the serpent can make us draw back in fear, to retreat, to kind of have a passive endurance. I'm holding on until you come. But in these letters to the seven churches, Jesus will call repeatedly to these believers to conquer and overcome. That is, take the hill by your endurance. Finish the race by your endurance. So as this drama begins on an island, John reassures himself and his readers that their suffering is shared and their shared response ought not be resignation but enduring, active, courageous response in their work and witness. And John says, all of this tribulation, I'm a partner with you in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Christ. That is We fellowship together in these things because we are in Christ. Our shared union in Christ brings us into sharing connection with His triumphs, the kingdom, but also His sufferings, the tribulation, and also His courageous perseverance, the patient endurance. So when John faces, when the church faces, it's not strange or unusual. Christ faced it. By your union in Christ, you will face these same things. It's just normal. It's exactly what Christ faced. And being in him, we face it too. Indeed, 2 Timothy three twelve, all who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution of some kind. And because believers are in Christ, they will experience suffering. But because they are in Christ, they have strength to endure and they're already ruling as kings. Now, while John is in Patmos as an old man, something happens. We've looked at what happened already, but in verse 10, John says, I heard a loud voice like a trumpet blast behind me when I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, when he says I was in the spirit, I don't think John means he's referring to his attitude of worship. Or he was in the spirit like he had gained that day. He was in the he was in the zone. I I think that John uses this phrase as it was used of Ezekiel, that the Holy Spirit was moving on John, that that John at this moment was under the control of the spirit because Peter says no prophecy comes by the will of man, by private, personal interpretation, something they imagined or something they hallucinated. The source of this was neither John's genius nor a mushroom trip that he was on. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. So to John in tribulation, to these seven churches in tribulation, comes a divinely inspired word fit for their situation. God knows what we need. And like a good doctor, he fits his medicine to our ailment. And now comes the revelation these churches need. And notice not only where it happened on an island to John, an older man, but when it happened. The loud voice called to John on the Lord's day. This is the only time this expression appears in the New Testament. It's a unique phrase. That captures the epic once in the history of the cosmos occurrence. Don't miss it when it's happened. For millennia, Jews like John worshipped on the Sabbath on Saturday. But something happened to make John a faithful Jew in a sense to go against the fourth commandment in keeping the Sabbath to now keeping the Lord's day as holy. What happened? The son of man. Happened. Jesus the carpenter of Nazareth. Who claimed to be the son of God. Was crucified in the place of sinners. Like you and like me. He was buried. And on the third day after his death. But on the first day of the week. Up from the grave he arose. And a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with the saints to reign. He arose, he arose. And what else then would you call the day of his resurrection but the Lord's day? The day of his triumph over sin and death. A day when the Lord began to make all things new. That day is the Lord's day. He started all over again. He's making all things new. Now don't miss it then. In a book where John is going to write about a new creation coming, that revelation comes to him on the very day memorializing that the new creation has already started the lord's day, the first day of the week, the day we call Sunday and one of the many arguments for the plausibility of the bodily resurrection of Jesus was that Jews like John changed their entire calendar we can't even move a date on our calendar once we have it set. This is a religious calendar. The whole religious calendar switched from a commandment, the fourth commandment, from the, from the, from Saturday to the first day of the week. Only the bodily resurrection of Christ, only the Son of Man could make devoted Jews like John start worshiping on Sunday instead of Saturday. Now think about this for a moment. You tell me, if that's what's happening on the Lord's day, if the Lord's Day is a day recalling the dawning of a new creation through the, resurrect, through the death of the second person of the Godhead, through the resurrection of the second person of the Godhead, a day that caused first century Jews to reset their entire calendar, if that's what the Lord's Day is, the sign of the new creation, should you skip the Lord's Day for a game, for a concert? for a live stream to sleep in? This is the day the Lord has made and we will be glad in it, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is not talking about rainy days and snowy days and sick days. Psalm 118 is the psalmist foreseeing the first day of the week and saying, this is the day the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. John was in the spirit on that day. And blessed are all those who keep his words on the Lord's day. Well, and that sorry situation, an old man gets a very special message on a very special day. And then and there, a loud voice as clear and as piercing as a trumpet summons John to write to seven local churches. John starts with the church he pastored. The other churches lay some 30 to 50 miles apart from each other. And the trumpet voice lists those churches in the very order a mail carrier would follow one after the other in a circuitous route. And these are seven real churches, not seven pretend churches. What I mean is this. It is true that in Revelation and apocalyptic literatures, there are symbolic numbers, but symbolic doesn't mean they can't be real numbers. Seven is a symbolic number in biblical apocalyptic literature, yet these seven churches are seven real literal churches in space-time history facing similar but slightly different situations from each other. Which means whatever our interpretations are of details in the book of Revelation, they must have had some sense to those who first heard them or you're not interpreting it right. And I'm not sure that Apache helicopters and barcodes and microchips under the skin and bent spoons and UFOs would have made any sense to them. But why seven churches? Well, seven is literal but symbolic. It symbolizes a full representation of the kinds of things, the categories of things, all churches will face everywhere at all times. That is, in these seven churches, God has not left any general kind of situation out. We could put it this way. Could I, could I recast 1 Corinthians 10, 13? There are seven churches so that we might know as Emmanuel Bible Church, there is no temptation taken us as a church that's not common to other churches. But God is faithful. And as he was faithful with these seven churches, God will not let us be tempted above what we are able, but will with the temptation provide churches like ours a way to escape, especially to endure. 1 Corinthians 10.13. And one of the ways God's provided for us in our temptation, one of the ways, one of the most important ways God's provided for our endurance to to obey 1 Corinthians 10.13 is by this book of Revelation and this message right in the middle of Revelation 1. You see, This book really is meant for our grace and our peace from the Godhead. It's meant for grace and peace. Well, this command to right now, if you have some kind of plot arc, this command to right now serves as the inciting incident. Well, now the action is going to start to rise pretty fast. After this command... The drama is going to build slowly to an inevitable but surprising climax. So let's move now from the setting, what John heard, now to the rising action in what John saw. From what he heard to what he saw, what he sees is a surprising vision of the sovereign Son of Man that's meant to sustain churches in their work and witness. Now... John turns around and he wants to see who is behind that trumpet blast. And he turns and he gets his first surprise. Because what does John see? He doesn't see a voice, but he first sees seven lampstands. We've already seen what those refer to down in verse 20. They stand in for the seven churches now. John was just told, verse 11, to write to these seven churches. And now in verse 12, each of these seven churches is represented by a lampstand. So John turns and he doesn't see a voice, but he sees seven lampstands symbolizing these seven churches. And in the Old Testament, lampstands always stood in the presence of God, whether that's in the tabernacle or it's in the temple. So as John sees these lampstands, where where is he? He's in the presence of God. And these churches are in the presence of God. You see, what Revelation does, what this apocalyptic literature does, it gives us a view of earth from the perspective of heaven. It helps us to view the whole history of humanity from the perspective of heaven. So John now has just entered the presence of God. We're taken in now to God's presence to view the situation on earth. And first up is the situation of these churches In God's presence. And then John sees something else. The action starts to rise. Because he just doesn't see lampstands. And if he had an Apple watch or some kind of Fitbit heart rate monitor. He'd get a notification. Your heart is going crazy right now. Because in the midst of these flickering lampstands. John sees one like a son of man. John's not alone on the island. Now, here is where the similes and metaphors of of this kind of literature start to sing and invite our, our biblically controlled imagination. John sees a figure like a son of man. That means the person John sees is like a man in his general appearance. As you see, this man has clothes and hair and eyes and feet and hands and a voice. But John says, this looks like a son of man. That is a man. This is not an angel. This is not a lampstand. This is not like one of the beasts that he will see later. What I saw was a person like a son of man. But he says, like a son of man, because when it's done, John realizes this wasn't simply a man. One of the drawbacks in breaking up this chapter in several messages is we might miss the logical connection. Last week, the message came to an end in revelation one seven there. John said, behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Now, if you said, who's coming with clouds, you'd go back to Daniel chapter seven. And in that chapter, Daniel in exile, like John in exile says, behold, in a night vision, I saw someone coming with the clouds of heaven one like the Son of Man. So when John sees someone coming from the clouds of heaven, he's seeing the Son of Man that Daniel saw. So John sees the very Son of Man that Daniel saw, and that means when John turns around here and he sees the Son of Man, he's seeing that same Son of Man from the chapter of Daniel, chapter 7. No wonder then that John says, I turned and I saw somebody who was like a Son of Man, but this wasn't only a man. This was the divine son of man that Daniel saw. And the son of man in Daniel is not acting like a mere man. He's acting like God with all of his prerogatives and and, and, and authority. Look in the inside panel of your order of worship. There it is in Daniel 7. You should hear this. Look in the inside panel of your order of worship. <laughs> right there. Here's, here, here's the Daniel, here, here's the vision. There in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Daniel sees the Son of Man, verse 14, comes to the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man is given universal dominion that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. The Son of Man is giving an everlasting dominion and he's giving an indestructible kingdom. In other words, the son of man that John sees is none other than the supreme and sovereign son of man who stands over all people of all times with all authority. When we hear son of man, we tend to think that's referring to Jesus humanity. Fairest Lord Jesus, son of God and son of man. But that's not quite right. The son of man is not a description of Jesus's humanity as much as it is a title for his divine authority over all power and over all people at all time. You see, if somebody has all authority, if somebody has all authority over all people and somebody's authority over all people will never end, who is the only kind of being that fits that category? It's God. So John turns then and he sees one like the Son of Man because he looks like a man But he's not only a man. He's the God man. He's the capital S son of capital M man to whom all authority has been given over all people. Go back for a moment to G.K. Chesterton's distinction. Jesus then is not like a rhinoceros who has great power, but no authority. Here is the son of man who has all power and who also possesses all authority. And the son of man's power makes the power of a rhinoceros looks like the power of a little worm. He does have the power of might. But the Son of Man also has this power of authority, of might and right. And the authority of the Son of Man, the authority of the Son of Man, as this book opens, the authority of the Son of Man makes Babylon and Rome and the United Nations and the Supreme Court and the United States and China and all of their combined leaders together. It makes all of their authority look like a tower of Legos before a swinging wrecking ball. Like a little lone swimmer as a tsunami's coming to shore. It is nothing before the Son of Man. Nothing. And if the Son of Man makes the mighty nations of the earth and all of the superpowers of the world look fake and frail, then what must the Son of Man's authority make the lesser authorities in life look like? Like bosses and DEI departments, and neighbors, and spouses who hate God and hate you. John did not turn and see the emperor Domitian, who persecuted the church in John's day without mercy. John turned and he saw a greater man than every other man. He turned and saw the sovereign son of man in the midst of the candlesticks. You know how I think this works? You know, when you're a kid, you're at a ball game or you're at the playground, and if you look at the stands or you find your mom and dad on the bench, you see your parents and you know it's okay and you keep playing. That's what this vision is to do for troubled churches and believers. Catch a glimpse of the sovereign son of man, the divine son of man, and you will know it's all okay. Here it is, this vision meant to sustain us in our work and our witness. But he doesn't stand in the off the sidelines, high in the row, on the bench, a park bench. The son of man is in the midst of the lampstands. The son of man is the Emmanuel. Church family, the son of man is the God who's with us. Who's not only around us. But who's among us? We're not alone. And what a comfort it is to know the Son of Man is among us. We're not alone. Be comforted. But what a warning. The Son of Man is among us. What holy persons, what a holy church we ought to be. It's comforting and a warning. So he sees the seven lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, the sovereign Son of Man who has all authority over all people for all time. But John is not only beholding the son of man in his position. He sees what he looks like. You know what John sees the son of man looking like? He sees the son of man is wearing God's clothes. John is painting the son of man with the ancient of days colors. Here's a surprise. This son of man is painted with the ancient of days colors. If, if, if you look at one thirteen and fourteen in Revelation, I'm going to read Revelation uh, Daniel seven. Here's how Daniel seven describes the ancient of days: the ancient of days took a seat, his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. What's the opening description of the Son of Man? His clothing and his hair. Do you see? John is painting the Son of Man with the ancient of days colors. Or in Revelation 1.8, God describes himself like this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Well, the Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And it's a literary figure of speech saying, I'm the first and the last and everything in between. I stand sovereign over everything. I am the first and the last. But now look down at the very last line of verse 17. How does the Son of Man describe himself? As the first. And the last. You see what's happening? The son of man not only comes with authority. He comes dressed with the clothes of divinity. He comes dressed in God's clothing. John is painting the son of man with the ancient of days colors. Even a passage we read earlier from Daniel 10 together. Everything said about that divine figure and how he looked. Even Daniel's response is matched here with the description and response here in Revelation 1. It means this. The Son of Man is not a title of Jesus' humanity, but a title for His full divinity. That Jesus is the Son of Man, sovereign in His authority, and equal to God in His divinity. What does that mean? Why is that a big deal? Well, Rome insisted that its citizens say, Kaiser Curios Caesar is... Lord. But Christians were those who looked at the Son of Man and said, Jesus is Lord and entered eternal life. Thus, as John turns and beholds the Son of Man, sovereign in authority and dressed in divinity, no wonder in verse 17 that John falls at his feet like a dead man. John has just beheld the Son of Man in authority, with the authority of the Ancient of Days, dressed as the Ancient of Days. Now think about this. this. This vision now is no therapeutic Jesus who shows us his wounds to make us feel better about our wounds. This is no soft and velvety Jesus who comes to give us a hug. This is not a tolerant Jesus who comes to overlook sin This is the sovereign son of man equal to the ancient of days who comes not only to save, but to judge. And John, who knew Jesus, didn't run to Jesus and fist bump him when he saw him. He didn't high five him. He certainly didn't address him as the big man upstairs or his co-pilot. This disciple whom Jesus loved who he heard still the sea, who he leaned against at the Last Supper, who he ate broiled fish with after the resurrection, who he saw ascend into heaven. This John who saw Jesus never saw this glorified Jesus before. He never heard this kind of voice before. He turned around in prison in Patmos and came face to face with the ferocious son of man as fierce in his holiness as in his love. And John is in the dirt ready to die. I fell at his feet as a dead man and it all goes quiet. We're at the highest point of tension in the story. At any moment, the Son of Man will speak, and John's last breath will leave his body. Oh, the terror of the beauty of the Son of Man. Before the beauty of the Son of Man, John falls at his face as a dead man. Oh, that long white robe that reached to his feet with that golden sash around his chest, reminded John of the clothing of great priests and princes, even the high priest himself. And the white hair that he saw on his head, in the Old Testament, it's a sign of somebody's dignity, a sign of accumulated wisdom gained over the years. But then this is a description of the Ancient of Days, so how accumulated must his wisdom be of this one who is eternal? This white hair, then, is not a sign of aging, but a crown of wisdom. Moving down from his hair, John sees eyes of blazing fire, a roaring fire that can burn through any defense with fiery judgment and penetrating insight. Nothing is hidden from his omniscient sight. And then maybe, I don't know, would you? Maybe John tries to get away from these eyes and he looks down for a moment. But when he looks down away from the priestly robe and the white hair and the orange eyes of fire, his eyes see feet of bronze or better, like shiny brass refined in a fire. And Matthew Henry says, these feet then are strong and steadfast, called brass because they will subdue his enemies and tread them to powder. Everywhere John looks at the Son of Man, he beholds power and beauty, power and purity, beauty and terror and then and then maybe John does close his eyes to get away from the terrifying beauty of everything and when he does he hears a voice a voice more sovereign than that trumpet that called him a moment ago like the sound of pounding waves against the island of patmos but this time it's like roaring white waterfalls coming together that demand such a hearing that everything else goes quiet this isn't white noise that drowns everything out this is the voice of the son of man john's eyes maybe they opened up again Maybe they never closed. But as John gazes back up from his feet, he sees his hands and think about this, his hands so big, his right hand of authority so big that it held stars in its hand like a little boy would hold marbles. Oh, how awesome is the Son of Man. And John keeps looking up at the voice louder than waterfalls, and he sees coming from his mouth a double-edged, sharp, two-edged sword. That would have been a heavy sword as tall as a man that could only be wielded with both hands. The Son of Man's words are like a two-fisted, double-edged sword that swing with deadly force, hitting the mark like a two-edged sword. God's words will prevail his words will wound and heal, striking at sin and healing as he goes. And then, and then as John keeps looking and listening at the sovereign son of man, the son's face shone like the sun shining at full strength. John catches a glimpse of the unveiled beauty of Christ the outshining of his glory, the unblocked beauty of light is what John sees. Oh, he doesn't see somebody with his head cut off like some horror movie scaring you. What terrifies John is the beauty of the Son of Man. Terrified in the presence of him. No wonder. No wonder to this man with authority, closed with divinity, that John doesn't run to Jesus, but he falls down. And now's the high point of tension because did you notice what happens next? That right hand that holds the seven stars now reaches forward to put his hand on a man of unclean lips who deserved to die like every one of us. And as the hand goes forth, it's curtains for John. He's done for. He's going to hell. It's the moment of highest tension and Jesus breaks the tension and he puts his hand on John and says, you're damned. No, the surprise is the sovereign son of man puts his hand on a sinner like John and says, fear not. Oh, to hear that fear not when you know you should bear. Fear not, says the sovereign son of man, not because you are good, but because I'm the son of man. And then comes yet another surprise. The son of man. Equal with the Ancient of Days in authority and glory, the Son of Man, guess what He does? Dies. What? The Son of Man dies? Surprise! Nobody saw it coming. The Sovereign Son of Man, clothed with the Ancient of Days, dies. It can't be eternity steps into time and dies? Yes, St. Charles Wesley, it's mystery all the immortal dies. Who can explore his grand design? In vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all. Let, let, let saints adore. Let angel minds inquire no more. The reason Jesus tells John to fear not is because his death on the cross as the sinless son of man paid the penalty of sin and sucked out the poison of death. And now the flame will not hurt thee. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Fear not. I died. But Jesus saves the greatest surprise for last. It's not his authority. It's not his divinity or his death. It's in Jesus' final words. And if you want to know what the greatest surprise is, Jesus says, behold. Behold. Here's the point of the vision. Behold, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. Now, if Satan and hell did its worst to the Son of Man and lost, if the Son of Man died for sinners, but now reigns forever for them, no wonder he says, fear not. Because, you are ready? I have the keys. I have the key. What are keys? Authority, power. I have the keys over the worst things in life. Like what? Like death. And hell, I have the keys. I have the authority. I'm back from the dead. Look in my hand. I have the keys. Fear not, seven churches. Fear not, Emmanuel Bible Church. I have the keys. I have the authority. Now listen, you know what this vision means? Here's what's crashing upon us. This surprising vision of the son of man is meant to sustain us and embolden us and our work and witness. And here's the point. Don't you dare disobey this command of the son of man. He said, don't fear. So why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Why are you afraid? Now, think of it like this. Think of it. like If the son of man says, don't you cheat on your spouse? Yes, sir. At the Son of Man, don't do drugs, don't kill, don't lie, don't steal. Well, of course you shouldn't do those things. That's a command. I'd never disobey you because those are commands. Oh, yeah? So how come when the Son of Man tells us not to be afraid, we still think it's okay to be afraid? Do you see his sovereignty? It's not okay to disobey the Son of Man in any of his commands. And here he comes dressed in deity with the authority of the ancient days, a sword in his mouth, fire in his eyes, feet made for crushing life. And he's back from the dead and he has the keys. Don't you dare disobey him when he says, fear not. Don't you dare. You see, you see the depths of this vision of the Son of Man this sovereign to judge in the same haven't yet reached the depths of my heart and your heart. You know how I know? Because if it had, we would not disobey this command to fear not. Where is your faith? Pull it out like a sword. Why are you afraid? The Son of Man is in your midst. This isn't rah, rah, stupid pep talk. This is the second person, the Godhead, the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, who looks you in the face and puts his hand on you and says, Fear not. What else do you want? Don't you dare disobey him. Don't you dare. He's not a tame lion. He's the son of man. I tell you. I don't care what your conscience says. I don't care what it accuses you of after you have repented. Don't be afraid. I don't care what Caesar says you can say or what you can't say. I don't care if the state threatens you with chains or with fines, I said, fear not. Don't you dare disobey the son. Look at me. I have the keys. I freed you from your sins by my blood. Don't you dare look away from me. Fear the one who says fear not. Let this surprising vision of the son of man Sustain us in our bold work and in our bold witness as we advance in courage to the end because the Son of Man says, fear not, I have the keys. How dare you be afraid? Now go learn what that means.